Well, we begin the book of Hebrews, and I am so delighted to start looking through this book. It is a tremendous task for any teacher of the Bible to look at the book of Hebrews, to come up to the book of Hebrews and to accept the challenge. (laughs) It is challenging. Many have looked at the book of Romans at the, the Mount Everest of theology. Well, certainly the book of Hebrews is right there with the book of Romans. It is one of the great pillars of the New Testament. And um, I am looking forward to going through uh, just the exposition of this book. You know, we, here in our church, we've been going through topics for several months now. We've been looking at different topics of Scripture that are very needful. They've been very beneficial. I have certainly have been uh, enriched in studying and researching those topics. But you know, the mainstay of our church and of my ministry is verse by verse exposition. Just to go through a book of the Bible and to discern the authorial intent of the author. And that's what we seek to do right here with the book of Hebrews. So let's start Hebrews by examining just some preliminary thoughts. I wanna look at three things, author, audience, and argument. That's really what you want to do with any book of the Bible that you're going to start to study. You want to do your introductory homework, so to speak. You want to engage a book by discerning the background of that book. And these are the three critical parts of any book study. You need to know who is the author, who is the audience, and what is the argument. And the book of Hebrews is actually very simple because we don't know the author or the audience. So, uh, you know, that kind of, that homework's over, you know, but uh, the argument is really what's at hand. But as far as the author, let me point out here about Hebrews. that Throughout the history of the church, Hebrews has enjoyed both a prominent place in the church with its magnificent, brilliant development of Old Testament theology, with its redemptive historical significance, the span of the book of Hebrews, the scope, the breadth, the depth of Hebrews, the fact that Hebrews brings it all together in the person and work of Jesus Christ. There really is nothing like it in the New Testament. Matter of fact, R.C. Sproul was asked if there's one book that you can take with you on a deserted island, which one would it be? And he said, the book of Hebrews to the shock of many who would think automatically he would choose Romans. He says, Hebrews uniquely brings and ties the whole Bible together. And I agree with him wholeheartedly. But Hebrews has also suffered massive skepticism by way of authorship mainly because the author is unknown. And theoretically, for the first few centuries of the early church, there always has been a debate. Now, the textual criticism is the science of studying biblical manuscripts. Um, There's nothing in the biblical manuscripts that suggests to us who the author is. There is not one single biblical manuscript of the book of Hebrews that has survived that indicates who the author is, that identifies the author. However, in the early church, the book of Hebrews was always collected with Pauline letters. It was always assumed, so to speak, that it belonged with the Pauline corpus. And therefore, many thought that Paul obviously was the author. Now, that gained some credibility on through about the fourth century. There were some, however, that doubted the Pauline authorship of Hebrews, even as early as the second century. Augustine held to a Pauline authorship of Scripture only to later 
uh, retract that position because he just found that the internal evidence didn't really support conclusively Pauline authorship. And so eventually both East and West Church determined that the the identity of the author of Hebrews was simply uh, uh, unknown and that it was safer to remain unknown than for us to engage in speculation. As a matter of fact, throughout the history of the church, several people have been suggested as possible authors of the book of Hebrews. For example, obviously, Paul. Also, Luke, because he was a companion of Paul. Barnabas, also, because the, Bible, uh, the, the book of Hebrews uh, titles itself a word of exhortation or encouragement, paralongeo, which would mean that, that, there, that, 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 that uh, Barnabas, who was known as the son of encouragement, might have written it. See, you have very scant evidence of, of authorship. People cling to the smallest things. Apollos has also been put forward as a possible author of the book of Hebrews because of his eloquence and that because Hebrews has such difficult Greek in it. And trust me, I've been working through my Greek New Testament this whole week, and uh, there is some difficult Greek language here. A lot of terms that aren't used anywhere else in the, in the Bible, anywhere else in the New Testament. Hebrews uniquely ties together an elaborate array of Greek vocabulary that doesn't exist anywhere outside of that book and that is quite difficult and rare. Um, but uh, also, uh, people have theorized that maybe an associate of Paul that is unknown because in chapter 13, whoever the author of Hebrews is, he knew who Timothy was. So some say, well, if it's not Paul, then maybe it was a close associate of Paul who knew and who was in the inner circle of Paul, inner circle of people like Timothy. At the end of the day, all of these speculations are just that. They are, they are interesting to weigh through, to ponder, to study, and... Um, But at the end of the day, that's all they are, is mere speculation. So we'll go with the textual criticism, and that is that no document identifies the author of Hebrews. And so um, from here on out, you'll hear me refer to the author as the author. And um, But let me just say this. Based on what we have in the book itself, we can determine the type of person the author must have been. Based on the book of Hebrews itself, we know that the author was theologically brilliant. I mean, the elaborate, the closer you get to the exegesis of this book, the more in-depth that you study it, the more that you understand the, the, the layout, the construction, the type of arguments that he's using, the type of chiastic constructions, which means this, that an author begins a portion of scripture with the same, with one topic and works in towards a central topic and then works out of that central topic and ends with the topic that he began. That's called the chiasm. Those are worked out throughout the book of Hebrews. It just shows the absolute theological brilliance of whoever it was that wrote this letter. Also, because of the reference to Timothy, he was apostolically connected. He was apostolically connected, and he was pastorally concerned. I tell you, we need the message of Hebrews right now in an age where we need to persevere now more than ever on so many different fronts. Let's just talk about the faith Talk about defending the faith. Talk about keeping the purity of the faith. Talk about understanding what are the essentials of the Christian faith. All of these things, we're living in a time where both apologetically, polemically, theologically, we need to know the faith, and we need to persevere and endure in the faith. And certainly, this author was certainly pastorally concerned for his people, the many calls to endurance and to perseverance. And then lastly, and 
probably above everything, the author was thoroughly Christ-centered. He saw Jesus as the very apex of everything that God was doing in redemptive history, and we're going to get into that a bit today. Also, as far as the audience, going from author to audience, sorry if you thought this was going to be just nothing but an introductory study of the author. We could be here all day going, theory, you know, going view by view, but that's, that's not really... Um, I don't think that's really even appropriate for the Lord's Day. I think on the Lord's Day, we should preach the Word of God and not just do background study, historical study. We need to get into the text. So I'm going quickly through these preliminary introductory comments. And so let's move to the audience. The audience um, is also unidentified. He doesn't identify them. There is a reference to, 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 um, from the author that he knew people in Italy, chapter 13, but that's about it. The rest of the evidence is very scant as far as who the audience originally was. But the real debate boils down to, are we dealing with, in the book of Hebrews, a Gentile audience or a, or a Jewish audience? Well, one thing we do know from the manuscripts is this, that the earliest manuscripts that we do have of the book of Hebrews, all of the manuscripts have the, uh, the, uh, the introductory script to the Hebrews. And so I think that this book is written largely to a Jewish audience, and that ties together with the argument. What is the argument of Hebrews? There are many points. Number one, the argument of Hebrews is about the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all of redemptive history. And this is very important to a Jew because the way that the author fashions the book, he argues from the, of the supremacy of Jesus over angels. Angels play a predominant role in the Jewish mind. His supremacy over Moses and the Mosaic order, over Aaron and the Aaronic priesthood, over the sacrifices. So the sacrificial system is also compared to Jesus. Jesus is shown to be supreme, superior, and above, and more important than the sacrificial system and all of the Old Testament sacrifices, predominantly spoken about in chapter 9. But also, we can summarize, if you want a quick summary of the book of Hebrews. There's two ways to summarize it. Hebrews presents two dominant themes, apostasy and endurance. You see, that is the central challenge of the book. The book is a, uh, exactly as it says in chapter 13, a word of exhortation. You could translate that a word of admonishment. What is he admonishing them about? He is admonishing them to stay faithful to the gospel. If you would, uh, to capture it in the words of Paul in Galatians chapter 1, he doesn't want them to so quickly turn away to another gospel. He doesn't want them either to go back to Judaism. And so that is much of what the book is about, warnings about apostasies. I had a whole list that I'd written down about preliminary reasons why we should go through the book of Hebrews. And one of them was is that it guards us against hyper-Calvinism. It protects us against the notion, the popular notion of one saved, always saved theology. Of course, I agree with the statement, but the theology behind that usually means something like one saved, always saved. As long as you're saved, you can live however you want. Because once you've been saved, once you've walked the aisle, prayed the prayer, signed the card, well, you're saved, you're good. 
You did your religious thing. You're on your way to heaven. Don't sweat it. Live your life however you want to live it. No. The book of Hebrews is all about an ardent admonition to the church to persevere, to endure, to, to engage in working out, if you would, their, their salvation in fear and in trembling, not taking their, their sanctification, not taking their perseverance for granted, but working out your perseverance, understanding that you do have the potential to make shipwreck of your faith. The other aspect of that is apostasy and, like I said, endurance. Turn to chapter 10 just so that you see something of the type of endurance that is being spoken about here and in the context of which it's being spoken about. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 32. The author points to this endurance. He points to this context. He points out the suffering in which they were um, surrounded. And he says, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, I hope you're looking at that, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming shares with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Yeah, try that in evangelicalism in Frisco. You enjoyed, you, you, you endured joyfully, you accepted joyfully the plundering of your house in Frisco. I tell you, this will test the, what kind of metal you're made out of. Knowing that you have for yourself a better possession and a lasting one. So the audience of Hebrews is to be commended because in the face of such persecution as that they are facing the seizure of their property, they are enduring, they're persevering. How? By faith. And that is also a hallmark of the book of Hebrews. Faith, 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 faith. Believe, persevere, endure. And this form of uh, opposition, probably from the Romans who were oppressing and who were persecuting this group, all of these exhortations to endurance results. But also... The threat of apostasy by way of a return to old covenant practices results in a call for maturity of doctrine. And this is so desperately needed today. Listen, doctrinal specificity is at an all-time low. I was listening to, um, I was reading an uh, article, um, I think it was the Christian Post. It was a professor out of Talbot, which is uh, Biola, Southern California, in La Mirada. And he was talking about how he, he no, he's noticed a trend over the last 15, 20 years in his students. That prospective students, students coming into seminary class today know so much less than they did 20 years ago. Simple, basic questions that we would, you know, uh, think are elementary. A lot of these students going into Bible college just don't know the answer to them. They don't, they don't know the answer. They don't know the answer. They think that John the Baptist was one of the 12 apostles. They think that Saul, uh, Saul of Tarsus is the same Saul of the Old Testament. Things like that. They would just sort of, you would think, wow, you would think a seminary student would know these kinds of things, right? In other words, biblical illiteracy is at an all-time high. And the book of Hebrews admonishes us, that's not Okay. Chapter 5, he says, it is not okay for you to stay on milk. Look at chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verses 1 and 2. Really also uh, 
in parallel with the, uh, the Jewish context of the book of Hebrews. But Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 to 3, kind of give us a glimpse into this call to mature, to grow in the faith. Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and of the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. This we will do if God permits. If God permits. Sadly, God has sovereignly allowed some not to grow, not to mature. I mean, we can say that about entire denominations that just have not grown. And as a result, oftentimes have gone backwards. But let's, um, let me talk a little bit about the, the, the way that we're going to tackle these first four, these first three verses here. I want to talk about three different aspects of Christology. Christ as revealer, Christ as creator, and Christ as redeemer. And today we're going to look at Christ as revealer revealer. That is that the book of Hebrews is teaching the the revelatory supremacy of Jesus Christ. And I get that from that phrase, in these last days God has spoken to us in his son. And so there's a finality about that that I want to bring out. And um, Jesus is also being uh, presented in a redemptive historical fashion. That is that Jesus comes in the line of the prophets as redemptive history is developing over all the epochs of time. Jesus is the climax. Jesus is the apex. We have reached the high point. And I love the way that the, the author of Hebrews binds the whole book of God together in Jesus Christ. You can see that from chapter 12, verse 24 where he says that the blood of Jesus speaks of better things than the blood of Abel. Jesus is better than Abel. He's better than Moses, better than Aaron, better than angels, better than David, better, better than Adam. He's better than the sacrifices. He is better than the temple. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the fathers. He is better. Somebody needs to write a song about that. Jesus is better. He is better, 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 better. He is supreme. We are looking at the supremacy of Jesus Christ. I don't know about your Bible. The introduction of my Bible has Christ's supremacy as the outline of the book. I think that's a beautiful way to outline the book. And so let's talk about Christ as revealer. Well, just before I begin to look at different aspects of this, I have three points. But first, let's talk about Christ as revealer in terms of the doctrine of revelation itself. God reveals himself supremely through Jesus Christ. Uh, be ready for me to use the word supreme supremacy a lot because that's the way that Hebrews is teaching it. And there are various ways, of course, that God reveals himself to the world, right? God reveals himself through scripture. God reveals himself through creation. But God reveals himself most of all through his son, so we have, we, have, uh, we have scripture or we have scriptural revelation, we have creational revelation, and we have incarnational revelation. God revealing himself through the incarnate Son of God. What Hebrews helps us to see 
is that Jesus is the final, ultimate, and climactic revelation of God, which speaks to this, this simple fact that God's revelation has a climax, that God's revelation has a purpose, a goal, and it is designed that way from the opening of God's Word. From Genesis 1-1, the Word of God has been moving towards a goal, towards a finish line, towards a climax. And the Bible says that Jesus is God's Word. He is called the Word of God in Revelation. He is the Logos of God. He is God's ultimate messenger. This is why Hebrews in Hebrews 3.1 calls Jesus God's apostle. He is the paradigmatic apostle. He is the supreme example of an apostle, one who is sent by God to speak the word of God. And that is what he is. The nature of Christ's revelation is that he is a fulfiller of all God's promises and he is the fullness of all of God's shadows and types. Oh, we'll get into that. We should also be careful to point out that there's a comparison that's being made here, but there's also a continuity. There's a continuity. He is in line with the prophets, but he speaks in a way that is even more final, more full than the prophets. Look at verse 2. In these last days. In other words, Jesus is all fulfillment, whereas the prophets are all future. They're all predictive. They're all prophesying. The prophets were, for, they were foreshadowing the coming of Christ and speaking of that reality to come, whereas Jesus is all reality. So that in Mark chapter 1, he says, the time is fulfilled. By his arrival comes the final installment in the saga of redemption. In the saga of redemption. So I have several things I want to point out here about Christ's or Christ the revealer. Number one, the divine initiative of Christ's revelation. The divine initiative of Christ's revelation. Look at verse 1 again. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, in many ways, in these last days, watch this, has spoken. And so you have this massive parenthetical statement here, but it's really God has spoken to us. You see that? But God is the one that is doing it. And for Hebrews, that's very important to ground everything that he's about to say about the supremacy of Jesus, the greatness of Jesus, that Jesus is better, these comparisons that he's about to make, that he is grounding this in what God is doing on planet Earth. <laughs> this is what God did in human history. He spoke through his son, ultimately, finally, the end of time. It means, in other words, that, that, that in Jesus, God speaks louder and clearer and fuller. And when I say in Jesus, I'm not just talking about the actual words of Jesus, the red letters in your Bible. I'm talking about the new covenant, the new testament, that which Jesus came to teach and expound, to pass to his apostles, that which, that which came through Christ as well as his 
preparation, John the Baptist, all of it. I'm referring to the entire New Testament. And this is precisely the problem with the Pharisees. The entirety of the Gospels and his interaction with the Jews, the Romans, the Greeks, is precisely dealing with this point that they fail to discern, as Jesus himself said, the time of your visitation. You have failed to see what God is doing in the world by rejecting his son. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul points this very thing out. 1 Cor chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. Beginning in verse 6. This is precisely what's wrong with the world today. Yet, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 2, 6, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature because in chapter 1, He's already introduced that the world is saying the message of the apostles is foolishness. Paul is saying, uh, 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 we do speak wisdom. We speak wisdom among those who are mature. That's a reference to believers. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. I just saw a video the other night. Somebody that James White was talking to, he said, oh, you're one of those guys that believes in predestination. It's right here in the Bible. I mean, what am I supposed to do with it? Anyway, I had to get that out of my system. Sorry. He says, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If the world knew who they had in their midst, they would have never strung him up on a cross. Acts chapter 2, guilty men, murderous men, with bloody hands, with murderous hands, took the sinless Son of God and strung him up on a tree. They didn't understand who he was. They didn't see that this was the Lord of glory. See, this is the central challenge of Islam. At the very core of the Muslim creed is that God has no son. It is blasphemy to assert that God has a son. I think about, can there be anything more demonic than that? But that 1.5 or however many billion people on planet Earth have as their central doctrine that God cannot have a son. And thus, they are cut off from any hope of salvation. They are cut off from the very life source of Jesus Christ. That is the Muslim challenge, folks. And that is what we should be telling our Muslim friends and neighbors. God does have a son, and he died on the cross. If you repent, he'll give you life. And he'll give you peace with God, which you don't have right now in Islam. There's no peace with God in Islam. There's just works-based righteousness. That is it. But that is the central challenge of all religions. Has God definitively spoken through his son? And of course he has. So... That is the divine initiative of Christ's revelation. Next 
is the redemptive historical nature of Christ's revelation. That is to say, look back to verse 1 again. He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. So remarkable. So much theology here for us to understand. The first thing I guess that we should point out in and, and to stress is that there is a continuity of message. This is not something new. This is not as if Jesus popped out of nowhere. It's not as if God has spoken in a vacuum. He has a redemptive historical context. In other words, you want to understand the meaning of Jesus, you must go to the prophets and what they said to the fathers, or else you will not understand the atonement you got to go to Leviticus. You won't understand the need for a substitutionary atonement unless you go to Isaiah 53. You won't understand why God has to send his son to be the heir of all things unless you understand what was spoken to David and the Davidic covenant. You won't understand why God has as his aim to give to his son the nations unless you understand what was spoken to Abraham, what was revealed therein. So everything comes together in Christ. He's the fulfillment, but he, in other words, continues this long, basic message of salvation. And that's what we need to see, is that this whole book, from cover to cover, presents the same God, the same faith, and the same way of salvation. Not two ways, one way from beginning to end. Jude, as Cameron pointed out last week, verse 3, Jude 3, the faith that has once for all been delivered to the saints, once for all. It is the common salvation, as Paul calls it, the common salvation, common with Abraham, common with Moses, common with David. There aren't two religions in the Bible, one for the Jews and one for the Christians. <laughs> There is only one faith, one faith, one baptism, one Father and Lord over all, Paul says in Ephesians. There's only one. Now, this reference here to the fathers really is probably referring to all the people in the Old Testament, not just to the patriarchs, because that's the way that, it, that you find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, Matthew chapter 23, verse 32, Luke chapter 1, verse 55. It's a reference to all Old Testament people. The prophets are also being referred to here not just as the writers of the Old Testament. Elijah was a prophet but didn't write anything. We don't have a book from Elijah okay, that he himself wrote but he did convey revelatory messages from God. He did prophesy. He did speak to the people, to the fathers. And the word of the Lord given to the fathers in the prophets was, re uh, with, uh, was revealed through piecemeal. That is to say, what you have in the prophets to the fathers is chunks, pieces, a piecemeal of revelation. In other words, they have what is partial, we have what is full. They have bits and pieces of where, as Peter says, they searched carefully to see what person or time the Spirit was indicating. 
So they're looking at the prophetic literature. They're looking at the wisdom literature. They're looking at the law, and they're trying to discern from all of the, the entire body of revelation, who is he talking about? When will he come? So that when John the Baptist is baptizing in Galilee, the Pharisees come forth and they say, are you the Christ? You see, we're waiting for him. That's why he's called the, the expected one. They're expecting his arrival. But in Christ and the apostles and the early church, we have all fulfillment. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, all of God's promises are made good in Christ. I like what Peter O'Brien says. I love Peter O'Brien. Uh, that's probably the... The number one commentary that I'm going to is Peter O'Brien's pillar commentary, and he says this about Old Testament revelation. He says it would include God's address of mighty works of mercy and of judgment, the meaning and the purpose which he made known through his prophets, his word in a storm and thunder to Moses. He says the still small voice to Elijah along uh, with his speaking through priest and through prophet, through sage and through the singer. That's right. The wisdom of Solomon, the preacher. Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, the singers, David, Asaph, God was speaking through all of these prophets. And we should not conclude, however, turn to 1 Peter as I develop this next point here. 1 Peter chapter 1, we should not conclude, however, that this is the first time that the Son has ever spoken. Now, the Son has been speaking for a long time, but we are talking about the incarnate Son. Look, there, I mean, there are many Christophanies in the Old Testament, appearances of Christ in the, Old in the Old Testament where Jesus is talking as the theanthropic man, the God-man, appearing, for example, in Genesis 18 to Abraham, and he says, shall I hide my purpose from Abraham, whom I have chosen to be the heir, to bless all the nations through him. Shall I hide my purpose from him? Jesus says, no. I'm going to tell him what I'm about to do. And then they get into the whole exchange of what, what's about to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah. But you see, Peter tells us this in this way. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. As to this salvation, again, common salvation that Peter's talking about, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time, watch this, the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The Holy Spirit is referred to there as the Spirit of Christ, just as he is referred to as the Spirit of the Father, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Jesus. It was the Holy Spirit, and it was his ministry in the Old Covenant to reveal and to speak and to predict and to indicate the things about the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. Amazing! Amazing! Turn to Isaiah 53 just very quickly, just to see the sufferings and the subsequent glories and how the Spirit of Christ was speaking prior to the incarnation of Christ. Verse 12 says, Therefore, 
<clears throat> of the suffering servant who is Jesus, I will allot him a portion with the great and will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. There are the sufferings and the subsequent glories of the Messiah. The suffering, he poured himself out to death. The glory, he will divide the booty with the strong. What's that talking about? Vindication. That is talking about triumph. That is talking about the fact, brothers and sisters, that you and I are fellow heirs with Christ. That one day Jesus is going to divide his victory among us that we're going to be able to celebrate with Christ for all eternity where we're, we're going to hear the words, enter in to the joy of the Lord where there are pleasures forever and ever and evermore. Why? Because Jesus has decided to divide the booty with the strong. Because he has decided to share his glory with us. In other words, to show it to us. Not to share, that didn't sound right, but to, to, to show us his glory. John chapter 17. He means to share this with us. <laughs> so that when he rose, he said, all authority has been given to me. And on the basis of Christ's authority, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. <laughs> See, he has authority over all things. A missionary doesn't get his authority from a missions agency. <laughs> he doesn't get his authority from a lady in a cubicle cutting him a check to be on the mission field. He gets his authority from the Son of God who has all authority delegated to him to go and to make disciples of all people, of all peoples. And as much revelation as was given to the fathers through the prophets it was not exhausted there is more to come that is in jesus it was the whole aim of it was to foreshadow to predict to speak of the coming of the suffering one in other words we were to be held under a tutor until the promised seed came we were, we, were, we were pointed to types and shadows and to the reality and the substance would materialize. They predicted the suffering of Christ until it was all fulfilled. The whole Bible, dear friends, the whole Bible is moving upward into the shape of the cross. And then when we get to the cross, we see the cross in all of its fullness, then guess what? We see the shadow of the cross being cast back into the Old Testament, all the way back, friends, to the very first gospel promise where God says that the woman will conceive and, or, or that, she, that, that her seed, she'll be given a seed and that her seed will crush the head of the serpent and the serpent will bruise his head. You see, that is speaking about the gospel of Christ, 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, where Jesus comes to destroy the works of the devil. Let me move quickly to the last point. 
Not only is there a divine initiative of Christ's revelation, not only does Christ's revelation move in a redemptive historical fashion, uh, tying into everything that came before him, but last of all, the supremacy of Christ's revelation, that he is ultimate, that in Christ everything has come to a head. Go to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Because here we have an amazing statement, and it's also a parallel statement of Paul. So the author of Hebrews and Paul, man, they are lockstep. They are, they are fellow theologians. They are thinking the same because they are under the, 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 the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, before I get to Hebrews, he says that believers, you and I, we are those upon whom the end of the ages has come. The end of the ages has come upon us. And that's exactly what Hebrew says in chapter 9, beginning of verse 24, just for context. He says, For Christ did not enter the holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the priests enter the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have need to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But, as we sang, now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. When Jesus came, it's, it meant one thing. The ages are now drawing to a close. The final installment of God's redemptive saga has commenced. The inauguration of the end of the age has begun. How do we know? Jesus came and his kingdom came. And so he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Simple. Simple. The end of the ages, or as Hebrew says right here in chapter 1, God spoke long ago, verse 2, in these last days. See, the author of Hebrews knew that he was living in the last days, and so are we. You say, well, it's kind of a long last days. <laughs> it's been 2,000 years, you know. That's right, because God is speaking of what he is doing along the timeline of redemptive history, all of redemptive history. But what the last days means is, is that God has set up the stage. Nothing else needs to happen. We're waiting for no more prophets. We're not waiting to hear another revelation of some sort. We have had all the fullness of everything that we're ever going to need in Christ. But let me remind us that this word, the last days, is rooted and grounded in the Old Testament. This is echoing back to many, many, many places in the Old Testament where the last days have been predicted. It says in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, Now it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream into it. And I would say that has begun in Christ. And uh, Micah chapter 4 verse 1 says word for word verbatim what Isaiah said. 
Daniel chapter 10, verse 14. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the last days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. Hosea chapter 3, verse 5. A deeply Christological prophecy that here is in Hosea chapter 3, verse 5. Afterwards, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. I've made a lot out of this verse in the past because, folks, by the time that Hosea is writing, David is dead. (laughs) David's been dead for hundreds of years. What is Hosea talking about? That in the last days, people will come to David the king. Unless, of course, it's a reference to the Messiah. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. These are the last days that have been inaugurated through Jesus Christ and through his coming. So that, in other words, what we have here is the, the, the completion of these Uh, the furthering, we could say, of these prophecies. That doesn't mean there's not a consummation to come. There certainly is. A consummation is coming. It will be finished. But in terms of what needs to be done until then, it is done. It is done. Finally, the supremacy of Christ's revelation is also seen by the fact that unlike the previous spokesmen of God, the epochs of revelation that came, Jesus Going back to Hebrews chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, Jesus has been appointed the heir of all things. This, of course, is part of his sonship. By virtue of the fact that Jesus is the Son, he is the supreme revealer of the Word of God, and he is the supreme beneficiary of God's world. Of God's world. You know, Abraham was told that he would inherit all things too, that he would inherit far beyond just the boundaries of Israel. That is spoken of also in chapter 11, that he would inherit the world, the world. I think it's a foreshadow of this very reality here, that Jesus, the better prophet, the better prophet, priest, and king, he will and he does and he has been appointed the heir of all things, the heir of all things. Now, I want to draw your attention to this word son. I want to end by a meditation of the Son, by looking at the concept of the Son of God, because the author of Hebrews, again, very brilliantly, isolates the word huios, Son, in a very distinct way. It's called the anarthrous use of a noun. In other words, there's no article. The word the is not in the Greek text. Consequently, the word his Son is also not in the text. His is not in the text. It literally, I mean, the literal Greek just simply says, he has spoken to us in son. Why? Why does he do that? It, this is known as a qualitative use of a noun. In other words, this is what happens at times when an author wants us to focus on the quality of the subject or of the noun that is being spoken of. He eliminates modifiers and he just leaves it son. In other words, the son is meant for us to 
to, to, to see, to esteem, to meditate on. He is supposed to reverberate. It's, it's almost as if he's saying he has spoken to us in his son, 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 son. I mean, think of the greatness of what he's saying. He didn't speak to us in a father, one of the fathers. He didn't speak to us in another prophet. He didn't just send another king, another ruler. He didn't send us another Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Isaiah. He sent us his son himself. See, that is the emphasis that is being put on this. And any time we are talking about the son of God, you know that there is an allusion here back to Psalm 2, and there certainly is, and all the exegetical commentaries have pointed that out. And as a matter of fact, this word here, the, 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 the phrase that he was appointed the heir of all things is also pointing back to Psalm 2, and it is the first description of the Son of God. His, this is the first description, heir of all things in a line of seven descriptions or attributes of the Son of God up to verse 4. Seven. We're going to explore those. I won't do a sermon for each one, I promise. But think of the wonder. This is what he's doing. He is lavishing the Son with prerogatives, attributes, privileges. He's lavishing his Son with these descriptions of messianism and kingship and sonship, of saying he is qualified, he deserves all things because he's the son. Are you at Psalm 2, verse 6? But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion. That installation of the king corresponds to this appointment of the son. He says, He's installed him on my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now watch this, heir of all things. Verse eight, ask of me and I will surely give you the nations for your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. I look at the nations right now. Iraq, huh? I just read an article by a bishop, a priest, a bishop, or a, I forgot what they called him. Kind of like a Coptic type church. Um, oh, what, what, what do they call him? Never mind. See, these trivial thoughts, I just, in a sermon, I shouldn't even be thinking these things, but um, there, there was a priest of some sort from, from one of the Christian churches in Iraq, and he said this, Christianity in Iraq is finished. Just yesterday, ISIS murdered 80 men and abducted dozens of women and children to turn them into sex slaves and convert them to Islam. And we think of this promise of the nations and how God has given the nations to a son. But you know what it means, dear friends? It doesn't mean look to a geopolitical development and the breaking news, you know, and, and, and see and, and try to find the promise being fulfilled there. No. It means that there are Iraqis who are in Christ. It means there are Persians who are in Christ. It means that there are people from Yemen and Saudi Arabia and China. You know what's going on in China today, dear folks? Christianity is exploding. 
The government doesn't know what to do with it. They estimate, some sociologists like David Wells, that there are some 300 million Christians in China in underground situations. Think about that. That's the population of the United States. How dare we think the kingdom of God is America? Evangelicalism in America, they just said, we've developed this consciousness where we think what happens to America is happening to the kingdom of God. And if, the, and if the kingdom of God in America is not doing well, well, then the kingdom of God is not doing well. What are you talking about? God can accomplish his purpose. He could just sidestep over America. So simply like a drop in the bucket, I'll get it done with the Chinese. I don't need Americans. I have a friend who trains missionaries to go into the Muslim world. They buy a one-way ticket to a Muslim country, and they don't come back. And you know where he goes? He goes to Brazil to train the Portuguese-speaking Brazilians because they are ready to die. They don't count their life dear to themselves. The, the men and women there, and I've seen videos of them and interviews with them, they're just crazy. They're ready to go to Yemen with blonde hair and blue eyes and lay down their life with a one-way ticket to Yemen and not come back. And so this is the way that God is giving the nations as an inheritance to the Son. The whole ends of the earth are his possession. God is triumphing through the apparent dismay of the nations. As I like to say, you know, there are hundreds of nuclear weapons sitting in silos all across this planet. And they're just going to sit there real quietly to the end of eternity, right? They're just going to, no one's ever going to push a button. They're just going to sit real pretty, decorate them like a Christmas tree. No, no, we cannot look for the fulfillment of this Abrahamic promise in any geopolitical development. Jesus said the kingdom of God is within. And I hope I'm challenging some of your theological parameters right now. This is good. Because I want you to think that the sun changes everything. And I know that I'm out of time, but let me end with this. What Hebrews is showing us here, we've just gone to verse 2. We've just hit verse 2, and already we are essentially being pointed back to the Old Testament in such a way that we have to conclude that all of the Davidic promises are fulfilled in Christ. He's the true son, the true king, the true heir. That all of the Abrahamic promises, the, 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 the covenant to Abraham with regards to the nations, that's all being fulfilled in Christ. And this is the way the book of Hebrews will go. Everything spoken to Moses is a shadow of Christ. Everything done in the sacrificial system is a shadow of Christ. All of that messy work in the temple is a shadow of Christ. And on and on and on, the book of Hebrews is unfolding the beauty and the supremacy of Jesus Christ to us. So let's pray that God will give us eyes to see that Christ is the goal of the law. Romans 10, 4.